Welcome to the Niche Enrollment Insights Podcast. In this podcast, our goal is to focus less on the promise of best practices, and instead look for the processes and questions that spark internal reflection and lead to novel solutions tailored to your institution. I'm Will Patch, Senior Enrollment Insights Leader at Niche, and my guest today is Matt Scogan. Matt is the 14th president of Hope College and has been in the role for just over two years now, from what might have been seen as a non-traditional path to the office. Previously, he oversaw operations and strategy at the global financial advisory firm, Perella Weinberg Partners, and before that spent five years as the senior VP and chief of staff at NYSE Euronext, a company that oversees the New York Stock Exchange and five exchanges in Europe. Services played a role throughout his life as well, and service is a primary message of the bold Hope Forward campaign. Welcome, and thanks for making time to chat today. Thanks for having me. It's great to be with you. Yeah. Uh, Well, I'm going to start off with two questions I ask everybody. First up, what's something you tried that didn't work, and what did you learn? Yeah, thanks. There's a, I was thinking about this. There's a long list of things I've tried that uh, <laughs> has not worked. One, uh, last summer, I decided to try, we took our family uh, on an RV trip for vacation, mm-hmm. and that turned out to be an epic fail for a number of reasons. <laughs> so I learned that I'm not meant to uh, be an RV person. When I was in high school, I actually thought I wanted to study science. I thought I should be a doctor. And so I went to a specialized charter high school for math and science. And I realized that I wasn't that good at it. And more importantly, I didn't love it as much as I thought I would. Also, I had been a long distance runner for a long time. I ran uh, ran cross country. And uh, at one point, I decided, oh, I should try short distance running. And so I joined the track team. And, um, and that didn't work. So one thing I've learned is that it's okay to try stuff. It's okay to try yeah. stuff. And uh, if I think I might like it, I should try it. Uh, we had this grand vision uh, during the pandemic that an RV trip would be a lot of fun. We have three young kids and it just turned out to be not what we imagined. We imagined it being like, oh, it's like a hotel that drives around. Uh, and yeah. it just was, uh, was not, uh, not as we imagined it. So yeah, I think I've learned that it's okay to try stuff. And uh, if anything, you learn that you do not want to, uh, or I've learned that I do not want to try some of those things again. Yeah, but but you haven't lost that fear of failure either. You know, it's, <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that's right. You're not afraid to try something new still, and that's yeah, that's right. Uh, good. That that's that's a good message from it. And I, I have to ask, as someone who has vacationed in Holland, where where does someone who is in vacation land go for vacation on our? Oh, good trip? point. Uh, we went up to the UP, so we went up to Pictured oh, yeah. Rocks, still in the state of Michigan, but it's a long mm-hmm. drive. It took us yeah. seven or eight hours to get up there. Yeah, in a in an RV with young kids, I'm sure that <laughs> yeah, was. That's right. <laughs> what what are some practices you use to brainstorm and bring new ideas into your work here? I've learned this about myself. I do a I do my best brainstorming uh, through a combination of conversations with other people and then mm. retreating uh, by myself, where I can take some things that I've talked about and sort of um, do my own thinking, do my own analysis on them. So for me, it's sort of a, it's a back and forth. I think some of my best ideas have come through conversations with, mm-hmm. uh, with another person or a group of people. But then what I like to do is uh, I feel like I get to the point where the group conversation is, is no longer helpful. I kind of want to sit down and look at a spreadsheet and crank some numbers or just do my own sort of thinking in a quiet space about it. And then maybe go back to a group. So for me, it's sort of a, it's a back and forth between my own individual uh, and analysis and thinking, and then some group brainstorming. Okay, so it's a lot of collecting data, and then you synthesize, and then you collect, and you synthesize. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm always interested. There's, there's, it's come up a few times of people who 
really love having these outside conversations. Do you try and seek out people who are experts in the topic you're thinking about or people who can come in with sort of that that tangent idea that, you know, it's slightly related? Um, it's a good question. I, I mean, for me, so in my day job now, I'm obviously working in higher education and mm-hmm. I myself am kind of an outsider to higher education. So I find oh, myself yeah. going more toward experts because I sort of, um, I don't, I feel like I've got a good outside perspective, but sometimes I feel where I feel vulnerable is, um, is the inside perspective. So I find myself these days when it's something related to higher education, which is what I spend 99% of my time thinking about. Uh, I find myself going more toward, uh, you know, other college presidents or, uh, or other folks who know, uh, who know higher ed pretty well. Well, I, I want to dive right in. There's a great program. We'll put, uh, the information in the show notes, I mean, Hope Forward is a very bold idea. I'm sure that you had a lot of brainstorming to build this. Could you give just a short overview uh, of what it is in case listeners aren't familiar uh, and then how you started that brainstorming process into what became Hope Forward? Yeah, sure. So I'll describe the vision. We're calling it Hope Forward. Essentially, it's a pay it forward model for funding one's education. And we uh, announced the vision this summer, and with that announcement came the, um, the, the announcement also that we, we have a cohort of 22 students. So uh, our long-term vision is to have every student at Hope College, we have about 3,100 students here, to have all of them on a, uh, on a Hope Forward model. Uh, for now, we're intentionally starting small so that we can assess and learn along the way. And essentially, the way it works and the way we would envision it working for all students is that students come to Hope. And their education, their tuition is fully funded up front by the generosity of others. And then they simply make a commitment and they sign a commitment to be generous to Hope College uh, every year for the rest of their lives after they graduate. Uh, And we state it that way. We do not name a specific amount or a percentage of income or anything like that. Uh, because we want it to be a gift uh, and we want it to feel like a gift. We don't want it to mm-hmm. feel like a different flavor of student loans. We want it to be a gift that's given out of out of generosity. That's the idea. What sort of went into it, you know, we did a, a ton of thinking and um, and we can talk about all the sort of thinking and analysis that went into it. Uh, but as we as we started to unpack many of the challenges that uh, we face in higher education, we sort of realized that many of the things we're wrestling with are symptoms of a deeper problem. And in our view, the tuition model is at the core of of many, perhaps not not all, but at many of the challenges that we're we're trying to address. So things like, uh, why do students feel entitled? Why does it feel like students are customers instead of students? Why are our alumni not particularly engaged? And why have we had such a hard time moving the needle on DEI? Uh, and many of these questions that we've been, in, in my view, sort of trying to tackle tackle as one-offs, and I actually view a lot of them as related to the funding model. And so what we've done is we've just changed the funding model so that rather than paying a, a pretty extraordinary amount of money up front before you get any benefits of your education, we're saying to students, uh, just make a commitment to give something to hope every year for the rest of your life. And then what we're doing is we're immediately moving away from a transactional relationship. It's obviously solving the problem of access in a very dramatic mm-hmm. way. Uh, and it's then giving us an alumni base of students who are, they know because they're they're making this commitment before, before they even start their college career, they know they're going to be engaged with our institution for the rest of their lives. And so it's in an age of lifelong learning, it's then giving us this lifelong partnership with our students. So instead of a four-year relationship, both 
uh, the institution and our students are signing up for this lifelong partnership. And I, I love everything that comes with that. I love the sense of ownership, the sense of accountability, uh, and just the sense of we're going to journey through this together rather than uh, we'll give you a degree for four years and then you head off to the rest of your life. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's very much a, how do we build a family instead of how do we build this customer that we hope will return next time they need something? That's right. I, at, the, at the end of the day, what we've been saying is we want to, we want to have our college feel like it's a community, mm-hmm. not a business, not an organization, not a nonprofit. We want it to feel like it's a community. And for us, that means students are not customers. And it also means faculty are not employees, that all of us, as we're coming into this college environment, we're coming into this community for the pursuit of learning. Uh, C.S. Lewis called Oxford a society for the pursuit of learning. And we want to think of ourselves that way, that as students enter, as faculty enter, we're coming into this community for the purpose of learning. It's interesting to me, and I'm sure it's not not missed for you, too, that there's so much pressure right now of, well, colleges need to behave like businesses. That's the only way they're going to survive is what you keep hearing. And you coming from the business world is saying the exact opposite. That's fascinating to me. <laughs> so talk about outside perspectives. And perhaps it took someone coming from the business world to recognize that a customer relationship works quite well in some settings. It works very well in most business settings. But I actually think if our aim is to provide a healthy learning environment, it's very toxic for us to think of our students as customers. In the business world, the old adage is your customer is always right. Well, if we're the teachers and students are students, it can't possibly be the case that our students are always right because we're trying to assess them. We're trying to grade them. And it doesn't work if we have this mindset of our students are our customers. And so, yeah, it's a, you, you made an interesting observation that there's uh, perhaps there's some great irony there. But maybe not. Maybe it is the case that because I've seen where a customer relationship works, I view it as we, we, because we're an institute for the pursuit of learning, we should go in the complete opposite direction. Yeah. One of the things that I I always compare the pricing models for colleges, you know, when we, when we talk to students and parents and they talk about being confused and they talk about sort of that sticker price shock, you know, it's no surprise because you don't go into a restaurant expect to see a burger listed for $5 and maybe your bill will be a dollar. Maybe it'll be $4. Right. You know, it, it's, it's so different. And so now with this, with this hope forward, let's say this cohort works, you get everything in place. How will you talk about the price up front? Is it, you talk about it being free up front? How does that conversation go now? Yeah, we don't use the word free. Uh, mm-hmm. It's, we do talk about skin in the game. Uh, because we do want students to have skin in the game. We believe that's powerful. And I'm an economist, so I believe in in, in aligning incentives. Uh, so we talk about two commitments that students are making. One is the commitment to give uh, after they graduate from HOPE. And again, we're not specifying an amount because we want it to be a gift. We want it to be a gift given out of generosity. And so what we're saying to students is you're committing, you're signing this commitment to give something to our institution every year. But mm-hmm. what you give is between you and God. So uh, we're not going to we're not going to um, uh, get involved in what the amount should be. And then the other way students will have skin in the game is through rigor and hard work. This will allow us to do a number of things, one of which is to continue to invest in our academic excellence. So I want hope to be the kind of place where students get done with their four year degree and they feel like, wow, that was a lot of work. That was hard. Mm-hmm. I earned my degree through hard work. And uh, in some ways, I think that's actually more powerful skin in the game than just feeling like, 
I paid a lot of money for my tuition and here's my degree. I got what I bought. And I don't want, I don't, again, I don't like that mindset. I want students to feel like they earned their degree through sweat and tears and hard work, not because they paid tuition bills. So for me, there's two kinds of skin in the game. One is that students know they're committed to this lifelong engagement with hope. Mm -hmm. So they're going to take it seriously because they've signed up for this lifelong relationship. And two, we're a place of academic excellence and rigor. And so they're going to get done feeling um, like this was not a degree that I bought through tuition bills. This was a degree degree that I earned through hard work because it was so academically rigorous. Yeah, it's interesting, too. It seems like it's going to be shifting sort of that mindset of I, I'm hearing more and more from families that they're almost treating the diploma as a checkbox of, well, I need this to get the job. So I'm just going to buy the degree, essentially. And that that. Ah, you know, I think we have yeah. to get away from that. That, that. That's not the purpose of education. It's the experiences. It's what you do. Because, I mean, you know this too as the college president and, and going through your own hope experience, two people can be there at the same college at the same time. You're going to have wildly different experiences based on what you do. So how, yeah, how, how, how do you see this sort of changing that mindset of this is an experience I'm having now. I'm going to be engaged with the next generation and and this is how I'm going to make this lifelong community and experience. Yeah, I think you just named it. Like I said, this is a uh, we view this as we're not just solving the business model issues of, of higher education. We are, by the way, we are solving the business model issues of higher education by moving away from tuition. As I always say, this is not free tuition. In essence, a scholarship is free tuition because a scholarship is just someone else or some other organization subsidizing your tuition through a scholarship. Uh, and what we're talking about is a business model where we no longer need tuition model to, uh, to to fund our operating budget because we're funding our operating budget through gifts. So we're just moving from a tuition-based model to a tuition-free model. It's not free uh, per se, but it is free of tuition. Uh, yeah. So, And the, the question is, uh, what does that do besides just solve the business model issues? And it does some very dramatic things, as we've been talking about. It, it creates an entirely different kind of culture where we can then truly focus on learning because we've moved away from what too often feels like a transactional relationship with students. And I would say I, I, you know, that's true at Hope and that's true probably at most colleges and universities, that as the price of tuition has escalated to such extraordinary levels, the relationship between institutions and students, it just has taken on this sort of transactional nature. Uh, and what we're talking about would just break that down immediately overnight. It's no longer a transactional relationship. It's a partnership. Yeah. Yep. When you were, when you were kind of building this out in your head and trying to say, okay, what is this going to look like? What models did you look at? I, I have one in mind, but what models did you look at to say, this is what it could look like? You're asking what other, what other institutions did we look at? Yeah. I mean, what, so, so what sort of inspiration, what, what did you draw on to build what became Hope Forward? It, yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I, I would, I'd actually love to have some other colleges say we want to do that with you. Like, I think it'd be yeah. great to have a coalition of, of institutions that is trying to pursue this with me. Uh, th there are other places out there and, and you could name them and I could name them. There are other places out there that are doing, I think, creative and interesting things around tuition. Um, you know, Berea College has a tuition free model. Theirs is a work college model. So they there you also make a commitment, not necessarily a commitment to give, but a commitment to work. Uh, to work at the institution. So we looked at models like that. 
we didn't uh, we what we landed on this hope forward model. I, I don't know of another place that's doing it quite like this. I, like I said, I actually would love to find a place that's mm-hmm. that's doing it or that would like to try it with us just because I think there's power in in a coalition approach to these kind of things. But yeah, we looked at a lot of different models and eventually uh, what we landed on felt like the right approach for, for us. And I would say uh, for us, it, it's hope forward is 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 specific to our Christian mission in that. Mm-hmm the generosity and gratitude aspect of Hope Forward is really nicely and, and in fact beautifully tied to what the Bible says about money. And because we're a Christian institution, I mean, our, that's what drives us. Mm-hmm. And I, I, one thing I've thought about is that, you know, so many Christians think about how do I align my life, my personal life, and that's the right approach. How do I align my personal life to the principles of the Bible? But there aren't a lot of institutions or organizations that think about how do we align our our organizational model, our business model to the principles of the Bible. And it, in an interesting way, that's part of what we're trying to do here. The Bible essentially says the purpose of money is to give it away. And so in some ways, that's the mindset we're taking with our education. Uh, it will be you know, in some ways given away up front, and then that will come with the commitment on the part of our students to do exactly the same after they graduate. So it's trying to build our entire business model around what our mission says we believe in, which is the God of the Bible. And so I, you know, a lot of people ask me, could this work everywhere? I think it could work at a lot of places. I think for us, uh, there's a, we're fueled to try this in a, in a powerful way because it feels so connected to our Christian mission. Yeah. I mean, it's not much more mission driven than that. I mean, that's right. It's hard hard to, to get around that. What, when when you were were working up to this, what sort of data did you collect, and how did you really start building the projections for the impact of this? Yeah, we started by looking at a lot of. Um, I mean, there's tremendous research now, uh, national research on accessibility, and we looked at a lot of Raj Chetty's work. So Raj Chetty is a is an economist at Harvard, and he's done some really interesting work on access to higher education. And essentially, what he shows is that if a student comes from a low income background and another student comes from a high-income background, if they go to the same college, they essentially have the same earnings potential after they graduate. So he's showing through data that higher education can be the great equalizer. But as we know, too often, low-income students and high-income students are not going to the same colleges. Mm -hmm. And what uh, Carolyn Hoxby has has also done some great research and she shows that too often low-income students not only aren't getting into places, but they're not even applying to places. And what she shows is that one of the things that oftentimes is scaring off low-income students from even applying to college is the sticker price. The sticker price mm-hmm. is so high. And even students who might be eligible for uh, scholarships or financial aid don't apply just because the sticker price scares them off. And so we started with the premise that we believe higher education can be the great equalizer. We believe higher education is the key to solving income inequality, but it's just not working today the way it should be. And we, again, going back to the idea of the tuition model itself being at the root of so many of the problems in higher education, we said, what if we could just change that? What if there was no tuition? What if there was no sticker price? What would that do, given the data we've seen from folks like Raj Shetty and Carolyn Hoxby? What would that do to the d- dynamics at Hope? And part of what we're doing, because we announced the big vision over the summer, and ultimately, as I said, our aspiration is to have all of Hope College be on a Hope Forward model. But we're still, to be honest, we're still in the stages of collecting data and learning. And so 
what we what we're doing now is we're saying yes we think this was going to work for the whole college but what we're what, what we decided to start with is a small cohort of 22 students uh, mm-hmm. for this year and then we'll do another cohort of about the same size the year after that and then for the third year we'll decide uh, based on how much money we've raised and and how it's mm-hmm. going for the first two cohorts we'll decide what size what size we want that third cohort to, cohort to be I would say uh, the early data is all blowing our expectations out of the water. So we had the, uh, the, the first cohort is, as I said, we had funding for 20 students. We stretched it a little bit and made it work for 22 students Mm -hmm. just because the students who applied were, were so impressive. We had a a selection committee that was a, a group of faculty. The entire application process was based on impact. Essentially the essay prompt was name an area of hopelessness that you want to bring hope to. Uh, because one premise that we haven't talked about a whole lot is that uh, we believe tuition doesn't just limit access to a great education. We believe tuition leads to student debt, and student debt leads to a limit of what students pursue after they graduate. In other words, students may come in with the idea of, I want to have impact on the world, but when they leave, they've got $50,000 of debt. And so instead of chasing impact, they have to chase income to pay off their debt. And so we based the application for this cohort of uh, Hope Forward students entirely around uh, impact. Name an area of hopelessness that you see in the world that you want to bring hope to. And there was an essay for the first round. And then the, the final round interviews were, did a, an in-person presentation on, uh, on that area of, of impact that they want to have on the world. I think what the selection committee would say is that they weren't trying to put a thumb on the scale for any particular demographic or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, just kind of who rose to the top. And the group is 50% non-white, it's 30% international, it's about 35% Pell eligible. So by every, uh, by every metric, it just blew our diversity numbers out of the water uh, in any way you'd want to measure that. Geographic diversity, uh, racial diversity, socioeconomic diversity. And so again, the early indicators are that this is doing exactly what we want it to do. Yes, solving the business model, but also solving some other challenges that we've been trying to address for a long time. Yeah, and I, I was going to ask how how that compares, and it sounds like it's it's attracting different students. It's attracting right. students who might not have thought hope was attainable before. That's it. That's right. Oh, yeah. and, and and students who are coming to college motivated by the impact they want to have after they graduate. Yeah, which is finding more students who fit <laughs> your mission, right? That's right. Exactly. Yeah, one of the things I I can see there being some concerns with is well, what if what if we we do all this. And then they don't wind up, you know, donating in the future, not donating enough to cover the costs of the next generation. How, how are you sort of prepping and planning uh, for that? Hopefully it doesn't happen, but. Yeah, so I'd say two things there. One is the way we intend to build to this is essentially by building our endowment to the point where we can fund students tuition up front through mm-hmm. through the endowment. So um, we're doing we're doing that so that we as we move to a hope forward model, we're not in any way jeopardizing the financial health or the existence of Hope College. So uh, essentially, we're going to get there by growing endowed scholarships so that eventually we'll have enough endowed scholarships to fund everyone's tuition that way. So that means that for the financial sustainability of hope, uh, we're not dependent on the gifts that students are giving afterwards. Mm But I would say for c- culturally, what we're trying to do, we're, we're, uh, we're very dependent on, on students living up to their end of the commitment because that's, that's exactly what we're going for. Again, we're going for this, this community built around generosity and gratitude. 
rather than a transactional model. So I, I would say I'm fairly realistic. I think I think it, the models we've built out, we know that some percentage of students uh, will sign the commitment. And despite all our best efforts to remind them of their commitment, we'll find ways to slip through. We know there will be yeah. some some folks who are just free riders and take advantage of it. I, I don't want to build a culture. I don't want to build a model around the exceptions to the rule, because I think most people will, um, it might be the case that many people, as they're in their earnings years, they feel so grateful for the opportunities that Hope opened up to them, so grateful for the great education they got, that in the end, they'll give far more than they would have given through just paying tuition bills. So I, I, you know, I mean, we've built lots of models and have some, you know, estimates of, you know, what we think it might look like. In the end, it's, for us, it's far more about the cultural impact of pursuing this community of learning than it is about the than it is about the numbers and and the reason for that is that we're we're building up the endowment to fund it that way. Okay, yeah, I'm trying to think of the things that people might hear this and say, oh well, it wouldn't work here because yeah. Well, there, I feel like there's always ways around it if you want there to be, right? <laughs> there's always solutions. <laughs> Here's what I've learned: anytime there's a big vision, there's lots of people who are quick to criticize it. Yep. <laughs> uh, so yeah, people are critical thinkers and. Um, and that's great. We want critical thinkers, but uh, sometimes that means there's a bent toward uh, criticizing as opposed to saying, wow, this is really bold. Maybe this can actually work. <laughs> it's really exciting to see this. And, and I mean, you you hear about these new things that get tried here and there over time. And, and sometimes you keep hearing about them. Sometimes they go away. I think of yeah, right. tuition resets. They get a bunch of press coverage and they never hear from them again. So you don't know while they right. actually work. You're going with this. You're testing. You're 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 moving slowly in the right direction. I, I assume then you also have, hey, this is going better than we ever thought. Can we move up our timeline, or do you have a set timeline for, you know, we want we want to wait four years before we roll out everywhere. We want to wait X amount of time. The we don't have a set timeline, so we can yeah. we can uh, adjust and and mm-hmm. be flexible along the along the way. What we've what we've said is for the first couple of years, we want to keep it intentionally small so that we can learn and assess along the way. I think the way I envision this playing out, the, the transition years will be a bit tricky as we're transitioning from a yeah. tuition-based model to the Hope Forward model. You know, the biggest thing that will drive the timeline is how the fundraising goes. And in my head, I'm sort of picturing this being a, a decade-long project to tuition, to, to transition to a full Hope Forward model. Mm-hmm. So I, I think the way I sort of envision it playing out is that we'll, we'd want to, assuming we like the dynamics of the, the Hope Forward cohort, that we'd want to grow it until it's some reasonable size, but not to a size where it's, you know, maybe maybe 25% of a, of a incoming class, maybe a little more than that, maybe 30%. But I, I think um, I probably, what I envision doing is growing the cohort until it's some uh, percentage like that, say 25, 30%, and then mm-hmm. stopping it there. And then as we continue to raise money for Hope Forward, then bring the price of tuition gradually down for everyone else so that at some point everyone meets in the middle. If we if we took the approach of just growing the size of the cohort until it's 100% of the student body, you'd get to a weird point where you'd have like over half and then eventually 75, 80%, 90% of our students yeah. on a Hope Forward model. And then we're trying to charge the other 
uh, small percent tuition, I just think that wouldn't work yeah. and would create all kinds of awkward things. So, uh, yeah, I think we want to we wanted to start small so that we can learn and assess along the way. Assuming we like how it's going, we'll grow it till it's some reasonable percentage. And then as we continue to raise money, we'll we'll bring tuition down for everyone else. Yeah. And that's I, I can imagine you get to a point where it becomes uh, there's some bitterness and, and hard feelings among students that why do 60 percent of the students get this and I don't. Um, that, that, and that's what we're trying to avoid. Of course, we and every institution has the dynamic today where there's different students paying different mm-hmm. prices for the same same education. That's one thing, by the way, that when we're on a full forward model, will that will no longer be the case. I mean, yeah. we've done thought experiments where I say if, if we ask every student to ask their roommate what they're paying for tuition, you know, almost every room will have somebody will be paying a higher price than somebody else. It's just weird. I don't like it. I, I there's the only other industry I know of where people pay the different prices for the same product is the airline industry, where mm-hmm. you and I might be flying from uh, Indianapolis to Denver and you're paying one price and I'm paying twice as much as you, but we're sitting next to each other on exactly the same yeah. flight. And it's just weird. And higher education has some of the same dynamics where there are some students here today on a full ride scholarship and there are other students here who are paying the full sticker price. And it's just it's it's weird. I, I, I just I don't like that that dynamic. It's totally different. It, it goes back to that example yep. of, you know, you don't we don't know what we're paying up front. And but then everyone wants to feel like they're getting a deal, too. So, we're, you know, what's the <laughs> right? We've been yep. trained by Coles and everyone else that you should never pay full price. So <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. How did you build the buy in and then address those concerns and, and the critics? Uh, about either the implementation or thinking the long-term impact. Because this is something that, I mean, this this cohort could be giving for the next 80 years. So that, that's a long-term project. It's a long-term project. I think one thing is the, the long-term impact is quite exciting. It's mm-hmm. the transition years that can be challenging and, and in some ways scary because it's such a big change. I basically spent two years talking about this and iterating on this idea before the launch. So if you go back and look at my inaugural address in September of 2019, it was on some of these same themes, but using some slightly different vernacular. And, you know, basically I was, I had been talking about this pretty openly with our faculty, with our staff, with students, with parents, with donors, with the community uh, for the better part of two years before we launched it. And I learned a lot through those you know, 24 months-ish of conversations. And and the, the end result of what we launched this past summer was way better than it would have been if we had if we had launched it earlier. In the early days, I was calling it Pay It Forward. Uh, one of our uh, religion professors uh, came to me and, and he said, if, if what we're trying to do here is move away from a transactional model, uh, we shouldn't use the word pay because the word pay yeah. uh, implies transaction. And that's inconsistent with culturally what we're trying to do. And so that sort of sparked a whole process of what should we call it? And pay it forward was a, essentially a descriptive title. Uh, and then we, you know, the marketing team went to work and we landed on hope forward, which is, is just, I, I love it. I think it's beautiful. Yeah. So, yeah, that's one example of many of how folks in our community helped shape it through the course of you know the two years the better part of two years where I was uh, pretty openly talking about this as an aspiration. And then that got to the point where the, the, the board, the board approved it, the, approved the vision unanimously in January of this year. And then we waited uh, until July to officially to publicly launch it. And so even after the board approved it, we had, you know, six months of kind of refining how we want to, how we want to talk about it and some of the, some of the more granular details. 
Was this something even you were thinking about when you were still in New York before you came back to Hope? Kind of. I, I had been on the board of Hope before okay. I took the job. And, um, you know, because when I was in New York, I was working in the financial industry. So I, I was mm-hmm. sort of thinking about the financial model of Hope College before I before I took the job. And I, I would say uh, when I was applying for the job, I was this wasn't a career move for me. This was a this was a sense of calling. I felt called not just to be the president of Hope, but to do something pretty bold and different. And so I, I made it pretty clear to the search committee and the board at the time that this is something I wanted to work on. And so I think they hired me knowing that this was going to be, you know, we were going to do something like this. Again, what, the way we were talking about it two years ago is pretty different from how we're talking about it now. So how, how did you get the the word out and explain it to everybody you're you're very prolific on on the hope youtube channel and and you're very active getting the message out in a variety of of ways how did you really explain this you have the great video we'll put that in the show notes too just explain what this looks like but what was your sort of of i guess on-campus hype tour look like i guess for lack of a better phrase oh the well the on-campus hype tour at started when I, you know, like I said, it was kind of two years in the in the making. The external hype tour, I view I view this as if this is a 10 year project, we're like in the first two minutes of what's going to be a, a long game. And so, uh, yeah, we're we're going after it with vigor. But we're still in that phase of uh, of talking about this idea and trying to generate um, real enthusiasm for it. How would you work with or, or bring in some of these critics who might have derailed it or, or still could derail it, I guess. How are, how are you bringing them in to help make sure that everyone can be on the same path? Yeah, I, I wouldn't say I have people who are really trying to derail it. I mean, there's people with questions and people who might be a bit skeptical that this can yeah. work. I, I, but... mean, I think derail probably is, is a bit strong, but just the people who can you you can have, I think, in anywhere, just these negative voices that keep draining people's energy to keep moving forward when they keep saying can't be done, not going to work. I've learned in leadership, there's a fine balance because you have to listen to people. And oftentimes, criticism has real merit to it. So you have to listen to some of what the critics are saying. But you also have to figure out a way to turn down the volume so that the the noise from your critics isn't louder than the noise from uh, from your enthusiastic supporters. And so sometimes that, you know, cause the, the, I think we're probably all like this, the, you can have 99 people say positive things, but then one person can say something pretty biting. And in some ways that sticks and that can get in your head and that can mess with you. And so I personally, I just have to find ways to say, I want to listen. I want to understand what that comment uh, means because there might be something in there that we need to that will impact the way we're thinking about this and might be something we want to change as a result of that comment. But you also can't let that comment, I can't let that comment derail enthusiasm from the 99 other people who are all in and with us and, uh, and, and excited about trying to help us get this done. Mm-hmm. Maybe some of the same skill set you had uh, with the RV trip where one, <laughs> one negative voice might derail things that day. <laughs> Problem is, we have five people in our family, and there were five pretty negative voices. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh my! Uh, <laughs> uh, so, so shifting gears a little bit here, uh, you know, I think given your background, something I'm always curious about, you know, tuition resets. We've heard about them over the years, mm-hmm. and I bring this up because we've been tracking. We do a number of surveys of parents and students. And for six years now, we've looked at 
enrolling students. And for every year now, we've had slightly more students saying that they're ruling out colleges, so they aren't even applying to colleges based on the sticker price. And this year it leapt up to 73% of students are eliminating colleges from even applying just based on that sticker, that total cost. I'm curious with your background, if you have any thoughts of what are the benefits, what are the risks, what if someone is either in talks on campus, you know, what, what are some of the things coming from your, your more financial background that might, might be good or bad there? I think, you know, every institution has to find the strategy that feels right for them. And I think obviously some places have tried tuition resets and it's worked, it's worked well for some places, other places have tried it and it hasn't worked, hasn't worked. So I think every, every place has to try, uh, has to find the right strategy for, for what, you know, what, what fits best for their institution. In some ways, what we're trying to do is to just say, let's play a different game. You can manage to price. You can also uh, have a strategy where you're actually trying to manage to maximizing uh, revenue. And I think some places have tried a tuition reset so that they can try to maximize revenue. And some places have tried to bring down the sticker price, but then eliminate a lot of scholarships and try to actually get more tuition revenue that way. I don't know. I, I don't. I've not seen data showing that that works very well. But there might be places that have done it successfully. Uh, I, again, I think what we're trying to do is to say, let's just this this whole game around pricing and discount rate and sticker price. Um, there's just so much about it that's frustrating, and I just I don't view any of it as long term sustainable. I think it's a it's a it's a model that just seems to be in general the tuition model seems to be cracking. And so what we're trying to do is to say, let's let's what if we could fund our college in a way that's entirely not dependent upon tuition at all? Mm-hmm. I'd love, by the way, I haven't seen that study that shows 73 percent of students are are yeah. making a decision purely based on sticker price. I'd love to see it. Yeah, I'll, I'll send it your way. Uh, we, we have actually we asked it for the junior class as well. And, and unfortunately, it's gone up a little bit more, too, for this class wow. 2022 Wow. Last year was the first time that we even had the majority of every income quintile saying that they did it. In the past, the wealthiest students still weren't all that worried. Last year, heart of the pandemic, even they were saying, you know what, I'm not even going to apply to this college based on that sticker price. I think some of it goes because they they don't necessarily know what that final cost is. You know, they yeah. they think, yeah. well, what if I don't get enough aid? Or maybe they just say, you know, can this $60,000 college, is it really that different than this one that's 30? They, they don't always know that, well, in reality, they're both going to cost you 15, 20. Right. It is priced just so differently than anything else they will experience that I think there's just some confusion and some frustration that I think you're getting ahead of now. Hopefully. Yeah. Hopefully. (laughs) What, you know, you, you mentioned wanting to have sort of a a coalition of other colleges doing this. What what might that look like? Would they all be very similar types of colleges? Would they be sort of your traditional competitors? What what sort of the ideal scenario maybe? I think it could be done in a number of different ways. I'd I'd love to just have some other institutions that are interested in trying to do something similar. I I, I mm-hmm. don't think it necessarily has to be. Uh, you know, I don't think it has to be a peer school necessarily. I don't think it necessarily has to be. I mean, like we talked about earlier, for us, Hope Forward is so tied to our Christian mission. But there might be places that say we're maybe not, maybe that's not our mission, but we think this this model could work here. Yeah, I'd love to just sort of have some partners in in innovation that say, hey, let's, um, we, we want to try to do something similar. Um, let's go after it together. I just think there's, 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 
power in numbers. And to the extent what we're trying to do is to start a movement to change some things in higher education, I'd, I'd love to have um, some other institutions say, hey, we'd, 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 we'd want to try something similar. And ours is going to be a little different, but some of the core elements, solving accessibility, mm-hmm. uh, having a community mindset as opposed to a transactional mindset and building in this sense of generosity and gratitude for us, those are the tenants that are that are most important. And I, I think there might be other places that would find those just as attractive as we do. Yeah, I hope so. I, I, I you know, I, I, this was something that, that Andrew Meyer had, had shared with me. And I just got so excited when he, when he told me about it because this is the type of thing that's really cool. It's different. Oh, it's right. a way of getting past just this. Let's keep doing the same thing of discounting, discounting, discounting. It's like you said, let's stop playing the game and just start from scratch, do something different. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. Right. Well, you know, I, I know you're very busy here, but if someone does want to reach out and, and sort of continue the conversation and, and learn more, is there a way that they can get in touch and, and talk more about this? Yeah, absolutely. You can email me at president at hope.edu. That will get to our mm-hmm. office. And then if you want to learn more, you can go to the website. It's hope.edu slash hope forward. Okay. Yep. And I'll put that in the show notes as well with the, with the link to that program so they can find more. So Perfect. Thank you. Yeah. yeah thank you so well. much. Great to be on. Yeah. I, I really appreciate your time today. Yeah. It's great to be on. Thanks for having me. Mm-hmm. Stay safe. Stay safe.